Welcome to Trial by Wine. We take a closer look at crimes that highlight how fascinating humans can be. Schmitty, Swanee and Clarky visit crimes and run them through their jury of three, debating both sides of the case to agree an appropriate, if totally fictitious, sentence. Please be advised, Trial by Wine may include explicit or disturbing content and will include drunken rambling. Listener discretion is advised. All right, how are we? Very well, very, very well, apart from a little bit chilly. It's still cold, that's right, although I, as I said before we started again, I've put the heating on, I've got my throw rug on, I've got my uh, robe on, I've got my fluffy tracksuit pants on and I'm wearing my Uggs, so at some point I'm going to strip off and start sweating. Um, but that's all right, it's just Can the joy do, of dark. being Can nearly do. 50. Possibly Don't you find that there's always around this time when they have, I think it's like, the, you know, winter and summer solstice, everyone in Europe's going nuts and happy and we're all going, oh. Mm. Every year no, someone always put, mm. someone puts something online that goes, oh, you know, that was the longest day of the year. It's like, I know, but it's not like all of a sudden now it starts to get lighter. And not quickly. It's not even remotely really. I mean, yes, that's true, but we're, we no, haven't really hit deep winter. We haven't winter, hit deep winter, yeah. have we? No. Nah, nah. We're nah. still just pissing about a little bit and we're <laughs> I'm a big fan of the um, solstice as a milestone because it says to me that we're on the way back and I know it's a long on the way back and sometimes July is colder than June, in fact, probably often. Always, even August. But it just makes me feel like we've got past that bit. Yeah, it's like the hump week, hump day of the I think think summer starts like in December, right? But I still think we piss about for a while, you know, and then because summer really doesn't go December, January, February. No, it's always much you later. Into, sometimes you get beautiful days in August and September and the and the flowers are out. And true. That's it's nice. just gorgeous. So we I don't do have like that much longer to get there. Don't worry, Swanee. We're nearly there. By the anyway, time we're back from you holidays, lot are all pissing off be... to Europe anyway. By the time you're back from holidays, it'll be Christmas, Clark. It'll be nearly that's summer. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. It's very deliberate. Don't you worry about that. There's yeah. nothing accidental about us nicking That's off very the well winter. Planned. That's very well planned. All right. Mm. So who are we? I'm Schmitty. I'm Swanee. And I'm Clarky. And together we are Trial, Trial by, by wine. wine. Beautiful. And what are we drinking? Oh, Swanee I've uh, cracked open the good stuff. I'm onto the uh, Coke <laughs> Nothing Welcome says back. Friday celebration like that Coke Zero. Coke Zero, yep. And uh, DT, what are you drinking? Well, we're having a uh, <laughs> delightful <laughs> drop called Sevenly by Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, you're still on that. And what's it like? It's actually, so we're nearly finished the first bottle. It's actually inoffensive. It's so, improved. you know, you can, yeah. well, you don't notice it while you're drinking, which I think is not a bad drop thing. When you know we're having these chats, I'm not having a swig and going. Ugh, um, that's it's just, yeah. I wouldn't say it's fantastic, but it's doing its job. Well done, SJP and Invivio. Well done, indeed. I could definitely drink this socially. Oh, good, good find mm. then. I'm yes. having a little uh, vodka tonic oh. this time round. Um, I still have one. Mango chutney, but uh, I thought I'd move on to this and try and keep it very light because we've still got another episode to record after this. Uh, and speaking of episodes, Clarky, what have you got for us? Well, I've got a little tale for you. So today we're going to take it over to the west to Carla's home state. Uh, Swanee's hometown, oh. yep. 
No, no, we're not going to We're going to go to um, Port Hedland and we're going to talk about the rather distressing story of Margaret Hawke. So my sources are abc.com.au, Channel 9, the National Indigenous Times, the Sydney Morning Herald, thewest.com, miningweekly.com, britannica.com and Wikipedia. Um, okay. And I'll apologise right up the front because um, I'm not super across um, the, you know, some of the Indigenous culture um, requirements, I guess, when you're talking about this. I do know that um, you should not talk about uh, Indigenous deceased. Well, you, sh- you shouldn't um, mention the names of Indigenous deceased nor feature their pictures or voice recordings, and we don't do that. Um, but I'm not sure about going further than that. So I just want to put a warning out there right now to say this story contains details that perhaps some listeners may find distressing because we do talk about um, people who are Indigenous who have died without mentioning their names or using their voice or showing pictures. Okay. And given that we are having, doing an Indigenous uh, uh, story today, perhaps it would be appropriate for us to acknowledge the lands that we are recording on today. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the Yorta Yorta Nation of the Taunarong people and the Wadjak people. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. So as I said, our story takes us to Port Hedland. Swanee, do you know much about Port Hedland? No. Being the closest I to? I think that no. my, um, my niece did her, like, internship to be a doctor in Port Hedland, I think. Yeah. I know it's so, a long so way thought, up north, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. And I thought for context I should give you a bit of a backstory around Port Hedland. So Port Hedland or Marapikarinya, as is known by the Indigenous Kariyara or Nyamal people, is in Western Australia. It lies on the Indian Ocean on the northwest coastal highway. So way up west, I guess, is a, a good way of thinking of it. Up north. Up north. Up it's north. a town that but I think mo- north, really. most people have heard of but probably few have visited. So if we have a bit of a look back into its history and how it got to the town it is today, uh, the port is built on a tidal island and has three causeways leading to the mainland and one that leads to a jetty installation for loading iron ore. It was founded in 1863 and named after Peter Hedland, who was the first European to reach the harbour in 1857. It began as a pearling port, and in 1888 it became an outlet for the tin and gold of the Pilbara, and a rail line was established between the two in the first half of the 20th century. You could imagine the port was super busy during World War II, and in late 1950s, Manganese discoveries brought new prosperity to the town. From there, the port continued to grow with the development of iron ore deposits, think dredging, more train lines, wharf extensions, that kind of thing. And eventually the community outgrew the island and began expanding onto the mainland. Today, it is a powerhouse of the national and state economy. Approximately 300 million in exports leave the town every day generating around $120 billion in revenue annually. That is a phenomenal amount. Mm. The port of Port Hedland is a crucial link in Western Australia's resources supply chain and is used to export a number of commodities, including iron ore and lithium. A report by the consultancy firm ACIL Allen Consulting found that the port's economic contribution accounted for around 20% of the state's gross state product in 
2018-19. And earlier this year, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said it generates approximately 4% of the national GDP. Jeepers. That's huge. The town is one of the world's most valuable ports, sitting at the centre of Western Australia's lucrative iron ore industry where billions of export dollars are generated. So huge amounts of wealth are generated, generated from this place. Uh, and you would you could reasonably expect, uh, for those people who don't know the northwest of Australia, I guess, that there is a significant city there with all of the joys and trimmings of, of city life. But realistically, the closest city is Perth, which is Perth. thousands of kilometres away. It is so remote up there. It's unbelievable. Like there's just... Yeah. I, I think people struggle to understand really what Western Australia is like when you try and compare it to somewhere else on a, any other continent, any other map. Yeah. Because it's just so far away from it, like big cities, you know, that we, we yeah. do have Perth, obviously. But once you get out of Perth, there really There's is nothing. nothing. And that is so far away. But there was a, a cyclone that came through earlier in the year and there was, I think Port Hedland was potentially in its path. And the, what, the quote, yeah, on all the quotes that they were um, coming out with was it, what it would cost for it to close down for a day. Yes. And it was just astronomical. That's exactly that. So, And so did you know, Swanee, Perth is the world's most isolated capital city? I absolutely know it and live it every day of my yeah, life. Yeah, yes, I, <laughs> yes. I do know that. We found that, I think, we isn't it, isn't it like, I think it's close, is it closer to Bali than it is to Sydney, I think? Because yeah, you don't realise, like right, how far away it is. Until you're travelling across Australia, I use the example that years ago when, before I lived here, I travelled here a couple of times to work and even actually in the years that we lived overseas and we'd come to Perth before we'd go across to Sydney to see my family. I'd remember sort of looking out of the plane or I'd look at the map and I'd be thinking, oh, you know, we're probably over Adelaide now and you'd still be over Western Australia. It's just, yeah, yeah. It just goes yeah. on and on and on. And then, yeah. all of a, and then all of a sudden it makes the East Coast feel like bang, 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 bang. You know, you're sort of like yeah, Adelaide, yeah, Melbourne, yeah. Sydney, yes. you, know, you know, it's like... It's in quick succession. It's a long way away. Yeah. Frontier country. <laughs> it is. Bum puck nowhere. Thank you, oh. Schmitty. <laughs> yeah, well played. <laughs> so despite it being high activity, <laughs> the town has failed to thrive. There are approximately 16,000 people who live there. That's more than I would have thought, actually. Many of the workers and, yeah, it's, it's a, still a reasonable amount. Are they but many fly of the fly in, fly out people? No, many of like the workers the who no. are there are absolutely fly in, fly out. So you've are got a out, community right? of 16,000 and then people flying in, flying out. That yeah. results in a transient community, which means it's very mm-hmm. hard to create a culture a mass of people who will become connected and invest in the town. You've basically got people going in and out and taking what they want and and going. There's also successive local governments that have been mired in controversy and youth crime is high. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lack of investment in the community and all of this has been blamed for the town's inability to develop. The closest town to Port Hedland is Carafa at about 230 kilometres away. By Pilbara standards, is literally just up the road. Carafa has about 21,000 people. The city of Carafa is massively different to Port Hedland. So a Port Hedland local, Jana Vujepic, uh, said, we get upset when we travel to Carafa because that's what Hedland should be like. They've got nice cafes, parks and breweries. As one punter quoted in the Western Australian said about Port Hedland, it's a shit town, but it's our shit town. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. 
Yeah, isn't it nice? It's so Australian. It's very the castle. So local leaders say not enough of the money that is generated within that area is returned to the community and the most vulnerable people feel the most. Niamal Elder, Linda Doogie B said more of the billions generated by the port needed to be put back into the town's support services for people struggling with mental health issues and victims of domestic violence. Arnold Carter, who's lived in Port Hedland for 61 years, said dysfunction in the town had gotten worse over time, linking it to a lack of mental health services. You do not have the facilities here that you expect to have for a population of this size and also Mm. the type of industry that we have, he said. The 96-year-old said watching billions of dollars be exported from the port while the community largely missed out made him feel lost. What what happens in Carafa? So Carafa, I I don't know um, in terms of the history of Carafa, but I, I guess the... The point of bringing the two up was that they are similar sized in a similar area. Yeah, same area. Um, yeah. But one more vastly different towns. Yeah. And, I just wondered what, think, but, you know, there'll be some mining thing that relates to Carafa. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, well, I think what, there's, what it's probably similar. There's probably some iron ore thing. Carafa's got the adjoining port of Dampier and it was established in 1968 to accommodate the processing and exploitation workforce of the Hammersley Iron Mining Company. And in the 1980s, the petroleum and liquefied nat- natural gas. Hmm. Well, I think you'll find the city of Carrathas 2023 annual community survey, which was completed recently, had the city equaling its highest overall satisfaction score of 76. So, yes, yeah, the people of Caratha are pretty much satisfied, if you think 76 is a good score. So I thought, saw things about Port Hedland, like there's just red dust everywhere. Mm. So there's... You know, the, the red dust is inescapable and the fact that pe- people are um, being asked to sell their houses and move out so that they don't have to fix the red dust problem. So there's, oh, you know, right. big, big issues. What's that? Kalgoorlie is apparently very red as well. Same yeah, thing. Yeah, Kalgoorlie's inland. And, um, yeah, yeah, but it's, I know it's yeah, mining, earth. but apparently it's just covered in red dust. Yeah, Because it's got all the open-cut mines there. We feel like we have sort of covered Port Hedland now. We can yeah, move on so. to the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. I want you to strap yourselves in right now because uh, this one is mm. fast out of the blocks. Oh. I'm going to take you back to not very far but to 4.45pm on Tuesday the 19th of July 2022, so less than 12 months. Mm. And there are reports of a house fire on Anderson Street in Port Hedland The house is a state-owned duplex only metres from the centre of town and two kilometres from the world's largest iron ore port. Firefighters attend the house and get the blaze under control, eventually extinguishing it. By this stage, police and detectives are on the scene and begin talking to people out the front. There were reports of the mother, Margaret Hawke, seen out the front in a really calm state as she watched the house burn. Other witnesses said she seemed really manic, walking back and forth. One witness said that she said, he's taken everything from me, whilst another said she screamed and cried saying, my babies, my babies, you don't have to suffer anymore. And I love my babies. I did it to my babies. Oh, God. Members of the public had tried to get inside the house to see if her children were there um, and if they could be saved, but the fire was too intense. Once the fire is out, firefighters begin the job of searching through the remains. To their horror and distress, they find three children dead inside, a baby and two adolescents. The eldest son was found on a mattress in a room at the front of the property. 
Her daughter and other son were found in a room at the back of the house. Margaret Hawke was taken to hospital and later admitted that she had murdered her children. She told police she didn't know of any other way to help her children before admitting to lighting the fire. Acting WA Police Deputy Commissioner Alan Adams said, the circumstances leading up to this tragedy will be subject to investigation. I don't propose to go into the details of the family background at this time. The fathers of the children have been notified of the tragic death of their children. The investigation will take time. Obviously, there is a, a potential criminal behaviour that we will investigate, but with the death of three people, the coronial investigation will also look at a number of issues leading up to the incident to better understand if there were opportunities for this to be prevented. So Margaret remained under sedation as homicide detectives flew in from Perth to speak with her the following day. Arson squad detectives and forensic officers also arrived to determine the cause of the blaze and deaths. So we've got three young children dead and a mother in hospital who's confessed to their murder. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Well, like so many of our stories, this is anything but. Is that the end of the That's the end. And that's it. Yeah. Catch you later. We'll see <laughs> you next like week. Just to remind you, it's meant to be a comedy crime podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really awful. Oh, it's horrendous. <sighs> um, further investigation revealed that Margaret's Facebook page portrayed her as a mother devoted to her three children who she described as her everything. For my family, I will do the best I can, she wrote. A family member who did not want to be identified said people saw Hawk hugging and kissing her children as she picked them up from school on Tuesday, just hours before the fire. Margie is a loving mother and never known to be anything other than that, a loving mother, she said. She is gentle, loving, kind and great with the kids, a good mum. Like any major incident in a small remote community, the impact of the incident is felt deeply by many. Port Hedland elder Patricia Mason said, Extended family in the close-knit community were in mourning and had requested privacy. They're taking it extremely hard. They have to come to terms with losing three children, she said. They don't know what happened and they don't know how it happened. It'll be a long grieving process. Town of Port Hedland Mayor Peter Carter described the incident as gut-wrenching. Hedland is a beautiful community and they will rally behind the people who need it at this time, he said. The emergency crew who attended the scene, I would like to thank them very much for their support. In a statement, the family asked the public and local community to respect the investigatory process, something police said would take time. We are unable to put into words the shattering loss that we are all feeling at this time. We request that the people do not speculate and make comments on the events surrounding the passing of our beautiful children. We ask that people respect our cultural protocols and not mention our children's names or share their images without our permission. We are quietly paying tribute to our three little angels and just supporting each other at this time. The WA Country Health Service has encouraged people in the community to prioritise their mental health in the wake of the tragic incident. Now more than ever, it's important we continue to be there for one another, Regional Manager Roger Golding said. So that's all of the initial part of the incident. Margaret was charged and went to court fairly quickly and the court heard, and again, this is one to really brace yourself with because it's, it's quite terrible. The court heard Margaret strangled her daughter with an electric cord and stabbed her oh. eight times in the chest and heart. Oh. She also strangled and stabbed her seven-year-old son. He was found with three stab wounds to his chest and wounds on his neck. Hawke tried to drown her infant son but failed and instead smothered the child before walking to a beach where she disposed of the knife. After she returned to the family home where her dead children lay, she lit two fires. 
and walked out into the street as it was engulfed by flames. Consistent with what Margaret had stated, none of the children were found with soot in their respiratory systems, indicating they likely died before the fire was lit. Margaret sobbed while repeatedly banging her head on the dock as details of how she murdered her three young children and then set their house on fire were revealed in the WA Supreme Court. Later, Hawke told detectives who interviewed her, I don't know why I did it, maybe to stop the pain. She said before she murdered the children, she told each of them, I love you, please forgive me. Oh. Yeah, exactly that. Margaret's lawyer, Alana Walden, described her client's life as plagued by dysfunction and difficulties, saying she simply was not coping with the responsibilities of being a mother. I did try to find more about her early life and it was really difficult. Um, mm. Again, I'm assuming that... It's not written down, mm -hmm. it's a local community. With all respect, it was insignificant in that community. So there, there may well have been a lot of things that went wrong and maybe a lot of things go wrong for a lot of people. And so it wasn't like it was making the news or there was a lot in the yeah. public domain. However, the night before the murders, Margaret visited a women's refuge in Port Hedland with her children and told staff she needed help. However, she was told uh, the refuge did not have the capacity to care for them and oh, she was God. turned away returning home with her children. Right. The court heard a hawk who had been introduced to drugs and alcohol at an early age had a perception that she was being intensely judged by people. Considering herself to be a failure as a mother, she felt deeply distressed and shameful. The prosecutor said that despite the seriousness of the case, the state was not seeking a never-to-be-released sentence for Hawke. It was deemed the case was not a, an appropriate one for such a sentence, although her lawyer accepted her client would receive a lifetime with non-parole period set by the judge. In sentencing, Justice Michael Lundberg said Margaret had breached the most fundamental duty of a parent and brutally killed her, child, her children. She was 36 at the time, pleaded guilty to three counts of murder after killing her 10-year-old daughter and two sons aged seven and four months in the family's Port Hedland home. In early May 2023, she was sentenced for the three killings and one count of criminal damage by fire in the Supreme Court in Perth. For the killings, she was sentenced to life behind bars with a minimum non-parole period of 25 years. She was also sentenced to two years and eight months jail for the arson to be served concurrently. So horrendous, right? I, I find that remarkable. I guess the reason I found this case was I saw that line about the fact that she'd visited a refuge the night before and been turned away so that that was one of the headlines that you know, that there, there were things about how bad she was because she killed her kids and then um there was this one that said she had been turned away from a refuge so just in terms of the refuge situation in port headland aboriginal family legal services chief executive mary karina martin told national indigenous times that while the Headland Women's Refuge offers an essential service to the victims of family and domestic violence in the Pilbara region, its capacity is limited. On several occasions, AFLS staff have attempted to refer clients to the refuge. However, due to a shortage of beds and no other viable housing options, family or otherwise, clients have been required to remain at home. This is no fault of the refuge staff, who are very helpful when they have the capacity to house new women. It is a fault of the state government in Western Australia, which despite knowing the statistics around family violence in regional communities and just how overrepresented Aboriginal women are as victims of violence, has failed to adequately invest in safe accommodation options for women. 
more beds in crisis accommodation would greatly benefit the Headland community, particularly given the other options in town, such as hostels, either will not accommodate children or charge a significant nightly cost, which is outside the budget of many of our clients attempting to remove themselves from domestic violence situations. National Indigenous Times asked the Western Australian Department of Communities what had been done since the tragic deaths of Miss Hawke's children to increase the capacity of a refuge and what would be done in the future to address the unmet needs in the community. A department spokesperson said the WA government has contributed total funding of $5.8 to the Headland Women's Refuge since 2014, which is, seems Big very little. deal. Yeah, it's not so much that's, that's, yeah that, nearly a decade. That won't build uh, an extra wing, you know, it, that, that gets nowhere, honestly. Correct. No, no, I, look, I, you're, you're, to me you're on the right track. The service is operated by Headland Women's Refuge and provides 24-hour crisis accommodation to women and children who are escaping family and domestic violence. The refuge operates five rooms for people at immediate risk or threat of harm. Wow, there's something to be proud of. I just wanted to talk a little bit now about the site because I think post my story, which is nearly done, there's probably some good conversation we can have around how this makes us all feel, if you're okay with that. The Anderson Street property where the murders occurred has since been demolished. I was laughing at Swanee's face. <laughs> you're not okay with it or you are okay with it? There's some major, major issues over here in this state, trust yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I don't know. I feel, like a, I feel like it's obviously coming from the East Coast. I find it more pressing here. Yeah, we did too. Much more prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The site where the house was uh, has since been demolished. Uh, The WA Supreme Court heard plans were in motion to build a community garden on the vacant block. However, the Department of Communities, which owns the land, has now said no decision has been made regarding the future use of the site. How about a refuge? The death of any, (laughs) good call, the death of any child or young person, regardless of circumstance, is a tragedy and has a devastating impact on the families and communities involved, a department spokesperson said. Thanks for your insight. In recognition of the significant trauma associated with the property and the ongoing impact experienced by the local community, Communities has not made any final decision on the future use of the site. Long life resident and Aboriginal elder Linda Doogiebee, uh, we spoke of her earlier, said the people of Port Hedland were deeply hurt by the loss of the three children. However, she said she saw how closely the community was able to come together in the sorry time. It was so tragic that it actually brought all different people of different colours, different cultural backgrounds together, she said. Um, and there was actually an article I saw where there was a family taking their three children to put flowers at the or near the site, sorry, not at the site. And when asked why they were doing it, they were saying it was the only thing that they could think of to show their compassion, I guess, for, for what had happened. Linda believes building a community garden would be a wonderful gesture and hoped people could go there to seek comfort out of the tragedy. That gesture gesture is a means that we can overcome anything together and that is to build a community with a bit more colour and flowers, a refresh, she said. She hoped a community garden would show the children's family how much Port Hedland still cared. We need to start working together, hand in hand, making a big difference, and to show the families that have lost their loved ones. Hedland is here to stay with you. So 
that's what I've got for you. So I, I think what, what I what I found about this story is no doubt it would be quite polarizing for a lot of people. I think the the savagery of the the crime in isolation is absolutely terrible and heartbreaking and raw, quite frankly. Whereas the the situation around the probably the lack of support and resources for a community that really needs them and a community that generates such wealth for the country, it's quite hard to reconcile the two. And I don't, I mean, I think, you know, that these issues are incredibly complex and there's no no silver bullet, but I, I do like um, what Linda was saying about the way that everyone works together and they need to work together hand in hand to resolve the issue. And I hope that if something good is to come out of this, it's it's more of more of that where we start to put our differences aside and, and work together on the, the similarities. Anyway, interested in your thoughts. Three children shouldn't have to die for people to work together and put away their differences and embrace the Very similarities. Very true. It's, so, it's such a big, big piece you know you look at the bigger picture there are so many so many people just just existing they're not even really living but existing sort of on the margins marginalized people who are systematically disadvantaged yeah yes and we as a state the way it's talked about and promoted both locally and you know domestically you know on the domestic stages you know we've got access to all this resource and you know and that's really where that's the heart of where it's coming from which makes it even more offensive you know, it is but i mean that that story would be maybe not you know having three children go one go, but i mean really that would be the tip of the iceberg there's so much so much dysfunction so much i i, I don't even I'm, I'm kind of speechless it's hard for me to put into words the little bits that i am made aware of and that i know of we've got a a family friend and it's actually his sister She's quite um, senior in the um, Aboriginal Health, I don't know what you'd call it, Commission Department or whatever else, and she looks after different communities. And their level of mental health, especially young people, is mm. they don't have mental health. They yeah. are all Mentally so unwell. unwell. There's a lot of stuff that's coming out over here about, is it alcohol, alcohol fetal, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, I think? Yeah. Where so yeah. many young people now who are, you know, high school, whatever else, they it's not possible for them to sit through a lesson, not possible for them to do all these things because they've had it since the day or before they were born from when they were, you know, conceived. There are all these things that they're now trying to, so that's what we're truly with. It's not kids being naughty or this happening or we're dealing with a dysfunction. Congenital that is, damage. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I've made no sense of anything. No, no, no. Just I, think, I think I think you've you just said this is <laughs> this is an instance that is you know shines a light on an endemic issue that you know we don't face, and and it's not just. I, I mean, I can't speak about WA. I don't live there, but I do work with Indigenous people in my work, my job, uh-huh. and it, even just. From if you if you put aside sort of individual issues that come up and you know mental health and all those sorts of things, the way that 
we white people respond to these things is to want to fix it and want to do stuff, but we don't know what to do. And I see a great deal of fear in engaging properly with our co-citizens. You know, we, we, we are frightened to ask the big questions. We're frightened to have those conversations. And that, that's what I see in my working life all the time. And it's weird because when you do engage in those conversations, you get a straight answer. Um, or you don't get an answer, that's okay, but that you're respected for asking the question in the first place. And I just think we're frightened. And so I know Clarky raised the referendum for later this year, earlier today, to see our views on it. I think something has to change 100%. We, we, we can't just keep pretending like this. It's that whole thing you do like the same thing and expect a different outcome. That's yeah. the definition of insanity. And it's not, it's not about throwing money at people. It's about providing people with empowerment and resources like this this woman Margaret, you know, if she, if there had been a bigger shelter, if the resources were there, would the outcome have been different? And quite possibly she asked for help. It's one thing if she hadn't asked for help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and so five beds, five beds in a 16,000 people community. Are you having me on? A community that would have a higher proportion of people who need help. Of people too. who need that help. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also... It's, it's very easy to write these things off as either, you know, far away because, because they can be or because it involves someone who's Indigenous and therefore that's the problem, right? And, and I think that I've heard things on TV or um, even from people who I know who almost seem to think that you don't have to treat these people as people because what? Well, because they're it's it's almost if if you're indigenous and you come from a a culture like what's going on in Alice Springs at the moment, right? Where there's all of this no drinking, but it's it's an Aboriginal thing, right? So so we can write it off as being prohibition, not part yeah. of our community. Well, well, the issues are that it's. It's what happens to Aboriginal people because they're Aboriginal and they don't do what we do. And, you know, they don't take into account the upbringing, the day-to-day challenges, the issues within the community. Systematic disadvantaging. Yeah. All, all of that, right? So I, I don't know if that I'm, I'm articulating it well, but but it's just that racism of, of basically going that is their own fault for, for being and, and yeah. making the decisions that they make. And, and I find that hard to listen to to the point where, you know, there are people who I've heard make comments that I just don't want to talk to anymore because I'm like, oh, that is awful. But I also, I guess, one of the kind of, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'll edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, but one of the things that that. got, loud and clear there is that. One of the things that got me was that she considered herself to be a failure as a mother and she felt deeply distressed and shameful. And and I think, you know, that's not something that someone who loves their children gets to lightly. And it's, you know, I'm sure people have that in varying degrees from day to day with their own children. But, uh, you know, hearing her say, I love you and please forgive me to each of them before she kills them, I, I don't know how you get to that point and I don't want to I don't want to shy away from the fact that she brutally killed her three children right and she deserves to go to jail and she deserves to be punished for that 100% but I'm kind of interested in as part of a community how you prevent that from happening particularly a community that 
has so much wealth being generated from it, which is skimmed off the top and sent to either Perth or Canberra. You know, this country makes so much money out of selling the heart, you know, the, the value within the land. What do we get for it? Well, I think, I don't know, there's a couple of separate issues that I can, that I sort of hear when you say that. There's sort of, one of, one of the things I'd be interested to know and equally I really don't want to know is her backstory because there's so many that you hear of and particularly yes. young girls, are the level of abuse is yeah. off the charts. I mean it's really probably one of their biggest concerns if you look at regional Indigenous communities. I don't even know if I have any right to say that. It's just what's reported in the news yeah. and it, it's yeah. an underlying problem that then leads to other crimes being committed. So yeah. goodness knows what had happened to Margaret during her own upbringing. So there are there are issues that are, and when I say community, I do mean specifically the Aboriginal community within the Port Hedland community or whatever else because they they have their own set of issues, I guess. Mm-hmm. So like, because I'm assuming that the Port Hedland refuge is for everybody. It's not just for Indigenous people, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think, you know, there's also the the point where in terms of people who need the, I find it to be simply off the charts in Australia, the level of domestic abuse. I find it to be mm. one of our, well, I don't want to say it do little secrets, but it is. It's so prevalent. And yeah. I think that I think it's absolutely amplified within Indigenous communities. But, I mean, it is. It's everywhere. Don't get me wrong. But do you know what I mean? I just I think there's there's so much horror happening at a very foundational level that these other things happen because this is wrong this is so flawed like Mm. you know the way you know if you're born with fetal alcohol syndrome that's a separate issue if you've grown in grown up in a family where it's a total domestic abuse seen day in and day out i I, i'm things that people are exposed to what is your normal is Mm. so unhealthy you know, then we talk about money. How does money play? It is such a complicated thing. I think, you know, you need money certainly to have the infrastructure to build things. You need money to have council. You need money for all the things that can build it. But it's it's what the money can truly dig deep and provide these the on the ground communities. Support, the Absolutely. Change. Because it's got us, it's, I don't think we can change it from the top down. The, the damage, and there's so many people who have been brought up in a cycle of abuse and marginalised and, you know, not being given the same chances as everybody else. I, I see it. I see it all the time. And, yep. you know, I, I, I do wonder, and I didn't really want to get into this, but I noticed that um, they were talking about, you know, the, the referendum that will come and the states that were likely or possibly not going to vote for it. And I wonder if those states, I think there was Western Australia, Queensland and... I don't know, there was another one that was quoted maybe only a week ago or something. Maybe it was South Australia. But for me personally, they they felt like the states that had more Aboriginal people in what I would call in situ, yeah, not yeah. in cities. So it's not the yeah, Aboriginals yeah. that have become, uh, you know, live in central areas and, you know, perhaps of where they've got proper, like in WA, real communities of yeah. Indigenous communities. I think people have... I find that harder to deal with than being in the city going, well, you know, it's all fine. It's actually mm. in the states where if you go into the city and you, 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 there's some pretty confronting scenes. Yeah. And that's what concerns me is the fact that the the states that probably need it the most are probably the ones that, to Caroline's point, are the most scared. 
Yeah. Because they probably don't want to know what, what are they really frightened needs to happen. Of? Also, what are you really frightened of? And I, I think so if we gave the resources to people, if we if we did the right thing, if we sorted it all out, and I, don't, I mean in collaboration, I don't mean coming yeah, yeah. in and trying to be the idiot white people that we are, just yeah. meddling. Yes. Um, but, you know, if we actually did it right, what are we frightened of? What's why, why shouldn't other people be allowed to have the same access to health, education, life as we do? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't understand well, one, what the fear is. I think you're right. I, I don't. It's almost an irrational fear. I think I, I, I actually suspect it's all about money and land. At the absolute heart of it, what, what are we frightened of? That someone's going to knock on my door and say, this is where my people are from, you need to get out. Is, yeah, is yeah. that what we're frightened of? I don't know, possibly. I think people are. Oh. So do I. I, yeah. I, and I think that if you feel being honest, I think that's I probably met it. Yeah. A very significant um, elder recently in my travels, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ernie Dingo, who I did describe. Oh, seriously, he was like Indigenous Jesus. The man yeah, yeah. talks in parables. He's Except very wise. Real. <laughs> oh, he's amazing. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. Jesus was real. It's just whether or not you believe he's the Son of God. All right. Yeah. Fair. Fair but, point. He and and you know in in a, in a thousand two thousand years you know we we may have the 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 church of Ernie yeah but I had this conversation with him well we asked him in the time of the voice and this referendum and all the rest of it you know what are your opinions on it and he I wouldn't say he skirted the conversation I think he was just quite careful about how he responded because he didn't want to necessarily say you should all do this and I'm the voice of all Aboriginal peoples. But I had a chat with him because I drove him to the airport and I said to him, I just think people are frightened are they fr- about money. And he said, that's absolutely what is stopping yeah. people. And if you rationalise that properly and you know that they, no one's going to knock on your door and chuck you out, and it's not big mining either, by the way, because big mining companies have already had to adjust and work with uh, local communities absolutely in terms of mining with the land so it's not it's not big companies driving this this is individuals having a fear of something that they just don't necessarily even understand and if we could get past that fear then maybe we'll get somewhere with this i think i think you're right i guess that the thing about the mining are probably I don't think mining builds communities in the same way that other industries do because people fly in and fly out. And I think there's a real problem with that in so many mining towns because in in other places, people live where they work and they um, are therefore invested in the community and that gives rise to sporting clubs and all kinds of hobbies and interests and whatnot, they're actually very healthy for a community. If people are flying in and out, often the people flying in and out have very much, um, they have mental health issues. Usually they have higher rates of divorce and that kind of thing because um, of the pressure it puts on the family. And I hate to think how much money is spent on airfares flying people in and out when, in fact, if they were to not have fly in, fly out and have people living, that would absolutely build communities. And so I think there is some level of responsibility that, that we should put at the mining industry for that, as well as our own greed in trying to rip the heart out of the country as quickly as we can rather than doing it out in a sustainable land, yeah. way. And I think I was more talking about 
mining properties in the land that the mine is on. Thanks to Marbo and various other legislative changes, the, the, the mining companies are forced to work much more closely with the Indigenous communities yes, around those, no, that's pa- true. those parcels of land. And I'm talking about also, that, not so much about yeah. mining's responsibility to create a, a community culture. The, the other thing I did see um, was that there is quite a lot. So, so one article was talking about the amount of money that um, is given to Port Hedland and probably talking more about the fact that the way it's utilised isn't being um, isn't getting bang for buck. Uh, probably in a similar way to you know I don't know the the pink bat scheme or whatever. You've got a like you said, Schmidt. You've got a government trying to fix issues rather than yeah. people on the ground building their own community in a way that is appropriate. And that's that's a hard one. So it is yeah, a hard one. Probably- and I and I think we're not going to get it right. But we've got to do something. Can't keep oh, going I, on like this. I don't know. We, we went through something similar to The Voice when there was the whole gay marriage debate. You know, it all gets thrown in, in the public and there's a, there was a huge amount of fear. People would say, you know, next people are going to be marrying animals and they're going to be, you know, <laughs> bigamy is going to be legalised and all this sort of stuff. People just go to these irrational fears for no good reason, I think, because there are some people who just hate change and so there's an element of that in it but but I actually look at the voice and go I would love it if um the indigenous culture was more integrated with our day-to-day lives I think it'd be more enriching I think you know whilst there is a connection to mother England and and the UK which which I you know I'm okay with um there's a nice bit of identity that we've got sitting right here that that we could either embrace or not, and why on earth wouldn't you embrace it? I don't understand the, the, the fear. Well, I mean, I'll counter that with I don't identify with Indigenous culture and I don't, I'm not going to apologise for that. I wasn't raised as an Indigenous person. It doesn't mean I can't respect that there's a, another culture, at least our First Nations people. You know, you have these chats with people sometimes and they're like, well, I've got nothing to apologise for. I didn't do anything. You know, speaking about genocide of you know, centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you didn't do anything, but you're the one here now. So we're still responsible for doing We as a community, whether our ancestors did anything wrong or not, doesn't matter. If you live here, we're all responsible for getting on with each other and living nicely. But, regardless but I guess what, of what I'm what saying our is, is. is there's some great things about the Indigenous yeah. culture that we can bring into our own day-to-day lives. And so the Welcome to Country is a nice one, right? And I've seen people post on Facebook I don't need to be welcomed to my own country or some rubbish. I'm like, my God. Like, is that is that what you're reading into this? Can I tell you? So apparently Ernie Dingo, I didn't know this, was one of the sort of originators of the Welcome to Country yeah. uh, with some other guy. And he was explaining it to me. I didn't know that, but he was telling me about it. And he was saying that it's like, I might have known you for 20 years, but when I come to your house, I knock on the door and yeah. you let me in and you greet me and you let me yeah. in. You know, just walk in and help yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what the Welcome to Country is about. It's about a respect to say, you know, you're here, we're happy to have you here, but have the respect and to knock welcome. on the door. And you are welcome, yeah. And the only thing that I'll say about the voice and the referendum, it's a really tricky thing because you're talking about changing constitutional law and – because the Constitution sets out how you can do a referendum and it's got to be like this one statement with a yes, no answer, it's a very complex 
question, really. Um, and how people interpret that question is then down to how they're going to respond to whether they're a yes, no in the referendum. And a person who's very close to me is staunchly against it. Not from a, I don't believe Aboriginal people should have rights. Not from a, I don't believe, you know, Indigenous people should be non-discriminated against. From a, I'm not really sure that the voice bit itself, that particular advisory body, is the answer. And if it's not the answer, you've got to do another referendum because of the way that the sentence is couched. What do you think of that? Well, what's their solution? That's it. Rewrite it. But but you're not in Parliament. You're not in a position to rewrite it. So but, but you, you either say yes or no, and then what do we do? We spend another X billion dollars doing another referendum. Not, not necessarily the right. because the wording, the wording hasn't even been developed yet. So the wording will be developed the, and the, the detail will be developed post-referendum. There'll be a whole lot that will come out post that. So the, the question... There is a question that has been put yeah, forward. Yeah, but it's very non-specific. Yeah, yeah. It's but it not... does reference the changes to Chapter Section 9 yeah, or adding a Chapter 9 on it. Yeah. And then it talks about the principles as well, which I don't know why anyone's bothered because if but you read all brush, of that, you'll brush, see. Right? And it says they don't have the right to veto anything. So it's not like you're putting an advisory body into Parliament that has the right to say no to absolutely everything. It's not That's not Correct. a democracy either. And I do know, I can't remember, and I apologise for anyone listening to this who knows this, but there was an Aboriginal advisory body that basically got defunded and chucked. And so part, I think, I think part of the reason of building it into the Constitution is you can't defund you it can't and chuck it if it's yeah, in the yeah. Constitution. Yeah. Yep. This didn't get a lot of coverage. I don't know if either of you have heard about this story. Probably to Carla's point is it happens all the time. It, does. it did over here. You've brought this story to the table so that we could discuss bigger issues, right, within the Aboriginal community. I, we could go to any place in Australia and there's Something shocking horrendous things, things happening. happen mm. and, yeah. you know, kids, that one in Queensland where the dad lit the kids. I mean, there's so oh, many no. shitty, shitty things happening yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think there are, there's, you know, there's that the piece, of course, which is about Indigenous support. I don't even know if that's the right word. I don't know how these people are, how can we ensure that they're given the right opportunities and that's very complex but that. And then you could have told that exact same story um, and it been even in Port Hedland and it been a, a, white, you person. Know, a, a white person and, you know, it would, wouldn't have surprised me either. The thing is because I yeah. don't know that there's enough support for a, a lot anyway, of people anyway. in this country. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that, you know, there's so I, – I, I understand why you brought it to tell and it was a very interesting thing, but I think that we've got some major social issues happening. I think that – the, the upsetting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one statistic that I'll leave you with which will upset you further is, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something to the to – The, <laughs> the um, one non-statistic I'll out. leave you with just so that I can upset <laughs> you is <laughs> – I think, I think the Indigenous population in Australia is about two or 3 or 4% of the Australian population. Not that the much. population of Indigenous people in jail is about 80%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, so don't get me it would be not dissimilar to I there was a um well you don't it might have be to, two or three percent. I'm this not, is, that's um, what I wasn't sure about. I'm not sure about my this, percentage, but, was, but this huge differential between massive, population yeah, and number yeah. and jails. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you ever and you cut this out, but there was a documentary that I saw, it was actually before COVID, but I think I saw it during early COVID, so twenty or twenty one or something. And I feel like it was called 13 or something. Anyway, it's an amendment. It's a US um, documentary. It was 
absolutely riveting and it talks about how all the way along if you are marginalised and you are kept down, how difficult it is for you to get ahead at every point and how every other, if they'll make a draw a parallel. So they were starting off and say, okay, the black people who were slaves. And then once they abolished slavery, they went, okay, well, you know, well then surely it was even game then. Well, it wasn't because then what they did was they made sure that the the jails were basically, you know, work camps and that. So what they'd make sure was that you could get put into jail, particularly if you're black, for, you know, very minor crime because then they would use you to work. So it was labour, right? So it was yeah. a, a labour force. And then they showed other things along the way when it came to housing. When when most of America, like middle America, got rich was when they first got their first home, which was very small, very inexpensive. But then as it grew in value, all of a sudden yes. they ended up with something. But if you weren't allowed to buy into that suburb because you were coloured, if you weren't, you know, all these things, it's one thing after another after another and it will be the same, not exactly the same, but, you know, I mean, there will be so many parallels We just go, okay, it's not going, oh, well, now it's even, now just go out, we've given you everything you want to do now. Yep. There you go. It's not because it's the system is built not to work with you or help you or help you grow 100%. Um, wealth. That's help right. you grow things so you can get education. The point, yeah. To the point that I have colleagues who are Indigenous who are around my age, Yeah, they didn't get a birth certificate until they were, I don't know, five, six years old, and they were classed as native. So no they didn't way. get a birth certificate. Yeah, right. at, that, at our age. Yep, in our lifetime. And yeah. if you have never done it, and anyone listening to this, I highly encourage you, if you can, reach out to organisations to do Indigenous cultural awareness training in Australia. It will it will shock you, it will confront you, but it will make you realise why people do have the need and the right to have a voice in what w- people are deciding about their future. We all have that right. So rather than sentencing, like we did a little bit in the last episode with um, Liz. What do you think of the actual sentence, the 25 years? Do you think that's appropriate? It's pretty shocking. Three children have been robbed of the opportunity to grow up and I get we. it feels harsh given her circumstances but it's also like what did Kelly Lane get, Carla? Can you no. remember Kelly Lane? Curious case thereof. <laughs> And they never found yeah. the body. They just assumed that she'd yeah. kill that child. I don't know. I think it's probably within line of the law. I would like to think that she gets a lot of help, though, while she's in jail. Probably won't, but I would like to think that maybe she'll get more help there. But how do you ever live with that? How do you ever oh. recover from knowing that you did yeah. that? So do you remember Robert Farquharson who drove his kids into a dam, said yeah. he had a coughing fit, drove through a paddock and ended up in the dam and his kids died, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a 33-year oh. minimum. And, and, he was and a he family had th- three kids. Yeah? Well, it was just his three mm. kids, so probably similar to Margaret in that regard. He yeah. got 33 years. So 33 years, not life. She got but 25. She's, um, 25 with parole. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually thought in the grand scheme of things, 25 years is probably okay because she killed mm. three people and she didn't get 75 years, she didn't get 25 years for each. So I think they've taken into account the responsibility of, God, them turning her away from a, a refuge the night before. That That's horrible. And not, not for the refuge, but, yeah, that's a horrible state of affairs that we've got that happening when someone is that 
I don't know. I, I kind of was like, oh, well, I can come at 25 years for her. We've said I can't come at that <laughs> right. a lot. I, I think I can come at that. What do you think? I think no matter no matter what your extenuating circumstances are, she didn't just, there's no just, but the methods to which she killed her two children, particularly the two older ones, were pretty horrific too. Awful. I have sympathy, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned with her mental state, so yeah. I think she probably should remain in jail. Swanee? I don't know. I think it's like most of these crimes that we get to where people have just had the most horrendous upbringings and then just something happens and it bubbles over and it, it just becomes another horrendous crime. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she did deliberately murder each of them in the way that she did it before she went back and set the house on fire, there's... And it was premeditated. Absolutely. I, mm. yeah. She deserves to be punished. Yeah. Do you think <laughs> longer? Or? She did. I actually don't know. I, yeah. I just feel very uncomfortable with the whole thing. It's just. It's it's confronting. Yeah. It's really yeah. confronting, which is probably because Clarky, you know, we've said before Clarky does the dark cases, but he does have this, you know, magic ability to bring out the stuff that just makes our anus, our little <laughs> sphincters clench a bit. And we're always worried about, you know, we're not, we, as anyone who actually bothers to listen to us will know, we're not overly woke. But we're not stupid, and we're not unaware of the world around us. And I, and even on the woke thing, sometimes I think we took people, people not go too far, but make choices for other communities to try and do the right thing that are as detrimental as if they just when they should have just asked what someone else wants. I agree. I'm um, yes. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> well, oh my god i can't believe it it's like we turn it this cancel culture thing is i'm cancelling cancel culture this load of old bullshit all right anyway so on that note <laughs> if we still have any listeners after this episode oh so, uh, clarky you wanted to give us oh, the numbers of anyone who might be affected by the case thank you for remembering that uh if you or anyone you know needs help uh you can call lifeline on one three double one one four uh, Men's Line Australia on 1300 789 978. Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. Headspace on 1800 650 890. Or you can go to reachout at au.reachout.com. Please, if you Thank need you, to, seek help. Don't feel ashamed. Just do it. No, there's no shame in it. Just reach out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Clarky and Swanee. Controversial one, but, you know, worth the chat. And as I say every week, I miss you already. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to Trial by Wine. You can contact us at trialbywine at gmail.com. Please rate, review and subscribe to Trial by Wine on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron at www.patreon.com, Trial by Wine, or visit our website, www.trialbywine.com, to donate to us. Your support will help us cover many more cases and apply wacky sentences. We really appreciate you listening and hope you tell everyone about us. Our cover art is by John Christo and music is by Beauchamp from pixabay.com.